Hi, I'm Rick Atkins, pastor here at CFCC. Welcome. We hope you enjoy this sermon and that God uses it to grow you in your relationship with Him. Before we get started, our goal is not to replace your investment in a local church with online content. We were made for community. We want to encourage you to engage in a local church with your gifts. See, when the people of God invest in the community of God, they experience the transformative power of God. And that is our hope and prayer for you. Again, thanks for joining us, and we hope you enjoy the sermon. Well, hey, everybody, if you were not here on Sunday and you tried to watch on live stream or one of our other uh, broadcasting services, you may have noticed that the video that we had did not have audio. We had some technical issues that prevented the audio from working, and we weren't able to fix it during the service time. Uh, so what we're going to do real quick here is just redo the message. We won't have the worship time from that, but we're going to redo the message uh, so that you can kind of hear the fi- one of the final parts of our series. Uh, so I'm going to do that for you here, and then uh, you can at least hear it. Uh, so if you, lo- if you missed that and you wanted to be able to hear the message from Sunday, this will be a recreation of that uh, that we're doing here now. So... Uh, My first church was in a college town, and our church building looked like a very traditional wedding chapel, so I did a lot of weddings. I got them down to a science. I mean, I know here's the verses I'm going to use, here's the illustration, here's the sweet pastoral words of wisdom that make me look really insightful and clever, and I got doing so many weddings, I'm like, I could do this in my sleep. Now, as someone who is afraid of public speaking, there's never a time where I get up on a stage and talk in front of people where I'm not taking a look to make sure I know what I'm going to say. I review my notes. I make sure I've got what I'm saying in my head because it's really scary if you don't know what you're going to say with a bunch of people looking at you. But I got so comfortable doing weddings that I was like, you know what? I don't need to do that. I can do this on my own. Remember the uh, story of Icarus, right? That's a cute cautionary tale. So I'm doing a wedding, and I'm crushing it, right? I mean, everybody's hopped up on feelings. They're laughing. They're crying. It's a really sweet ceremony. Everything's going really, really well. You can kiss your bride. I pronounce you husband and wife. And then I realize I don't remember this dude's last name. You know where it's at? written in the notes that I didn't bother to look at because I was overconfident in my ability to not need them. So I'm standing there, not knowing what to do. Like, this is my nightmare. There's, and it's not a small wedding, right? It's like there's 200 plus people staring at me. And you know, like, when you get into a spot where you panic, <laughs> your brain has like 700 thoughts that happen all at the same time. And I'm sitting there, like, trying to process all of them in the fraction of a second I have before I need to do something, before it gets weird. So I'm like, I can't just, like, whisper to the dude, like, hey, what's your last name? Because I have a microphone attached to my face. Everybody's going to hear that. I mean, I did premarital counseling with them on purpose because I like to make sure that the weddings are more personal and connected. But I'm like, now it's going to end up feeling like I'm the guy in Vegas performing the, the just take a number chapel weddings. Like, next, what's your name? Okay, you're married, go. I'm like, what do I do here? So I'm like, well, this is going to happen. So I go, it's now my honor to present to you for the first time, Mr. and Mrs. <coughs> and then I just kind of hoped that they wouldn't notice that that's what I was doing. <clears throat> and that's when I learned, or was reminded painfully, of all the things that can go wrong when you fail to prepare. So if you've got a Bible or a Bible app, we're going to be in Matthew 25, starting in verse 1 this week. We're going to look at the parable of the virgins, of the ten virgins, which 
If you hear you're like, hey, that sounds like a fun story. I'm excited about that. I was too until I remembered the ending, and uh, now it's a bad choice. So we're going to play some good news, bad news. Uh, bad news, this is probably the second scariest passage in the entire Bible. Second only to Matthew 7.22, where Jesus says, I tell you on that day, many will come to me saying, Lord, Lord, do we not cast out demons and perform miracles and do many great works in your name? And I will say to them, away from me, I never knew you. Right, that's just, this is just about as scary as that. I thought we were going to be doing a nice feel-good message, like, hey, here's the encouragement to be prepared and all this great stuff that comes from the text, and I forgot about the end, so now I'm going to be the guy that's going, hey, let me warn you about something real bad. But here's the good news. Even amidst this terrifying truth, there's a beautiful promise. So Matthew chapter 25, verse 1. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps. The virgins are uh, the word in Hebrew for virgin in many cases also means just young woman. So this is describing most likely just young unmarried women or bridesmaids who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. We just say groom. So what Jesus is painting for us here is a picture that would have been very familiar to his audience. This is a very typical first century Palestinian wedding. And so what you would have was the groom, before before the wedding ceremony, would leave his house and walk to the house of the bride. But when he would arrive was unknown. So they would call bridesmaids. And their role in the wedding was to go out and to wait for the groom to arrive. This was their calling, their purpose. It was their job in the wedding. They went out, they welcomed, when the groom arrived, they welcomed him, and they ushered him in. The, cere- the wedding ceremony would typically take place at the house of the bride. After the ceremony was over, there would be a great parade through the streets back to the house of the groom, where they would have a massive feast that typically lasted a week or more. Like, that's a really long wedding reception. Like, like a lot of times we go to wedding receptions, like you, you have the dinner, and by the end of it, you're like, I'm just ready to get out of here. Their wedding reception lasted a week or more. That is a long, massive party. And it was the honor and the privilege for these bridesmaids to march with the groom's parade back to his home and to partake in the wedding feast. So who are these bridesmaids? That's what makes this text so terrifying. It's us. It's church people. The bridesmaids are people, Christians, who at least profess to be followers of Jesus. The bridegroom, or what we say groom, in the New Testament, whenever you see that, it is a reference to Jesus. Verse 2. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took the flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. So the ten girls go out, and they take their lamps with them. The lamp would look like this. This is a a lamp from Israel. It's a little clay uh, piece. It's about three inches in diameter. You've got a space for the wick to come out, and then you've got a hole where you put your oil. This would hold about a tablespoon of oil. And so they go out with their lamps to wait for the groom. Time passes, it gets late, they fall asleep. Falling asleep here does not indicate that they were being unfaithful or they were drifting in their faith. One of the things we have to be careful about when we look at a parable is not over-interpreting every little detail. These are not trained Roman soldiers 
They're young women who have been invited to be a part of a wedding. It was not expected that they would stay awake all night. They were expected to be ready and prepared to welcome the groom and usher him into the wedding gala when he arrived. They weren't expecting to stay awake if he arrived late at night. The sleeping here is more about the groom being delayed abnormally long than it is about the faithfulness of these ten girls. Now we got to pause here. Because I got a pep, this, this text kind of addresses a pet peeve of mine. Uh, so we're going to go on a little bit of a rant, and that'll be super fun. Because this parable deals with what's, called, with what's called the parousia, that is the second coming of Jesus. Meaning that this parable relates to the end times. And as such, it is shrouded in a certain degree of mystery. And I don't know if it's because we all like had this thing ingrained in us from Scooby-Doo as a kid, but whenever there's a mystery, there's some part of it's like, we got to solve that mystery. It's like we love conspiracy theories. We love the idea of cracking a code and finding hidden knowledge, despite the fact that that has gotten us into trouble since the beginning. If you remember in the garden, the forbidden fruit contained the knowledge of good and evil. And so we got this choice in the garden, right? You can obey God and live in community and harmony with God and the paradise they made, or we can have secret knowledge. And we're like, yeah, I'll give me the secret knowledge. It's never worked out for us, but we continue to do it. See, over and over and over again, Jesus tells us clearly, directly, and unmistakably, no one will know when I'm coming back. In fact, he goes so far as to say, I don't even know. Only the Father knows. And yet, all throughout church history, there's been one wackadoodle after another, putting together information, going, look, I figured it out, I've deduced it, I've done the math, and I've figured out when Jesus is coming back. And I get this all the time. People come up to me, they're like, hey, have you heard of this guy, Joseph McDummyface? He is an expert in biblical symbolism and in imagery. And so he did a study through like Daniel and parts of like Isaiah and Revelation. And he puts together all this really cool stuff. And I've never heard anything like this before. It's crazy. I had no idea that the locusts represented golf carts. And you know, like, okay, so Sometimes new ideas are fun, but when there's this book that's been studied for over 2,000 years and no one has suggested something before, it may not be that it's a great idea. The reason nobody came up with it before may be that it's real dumb. But the people come and say, hey, have you heard this? Have you looked at what he's, look at all the credible research and the symbolism that he unpacks and he's figured out how to know when Jesus is coming back. And I'm sitting there going, like, how much force does it take for the face palm to go through the face and out the back? Right? Because they don't make an eye roll heavy enough to describe my reaction to this. So listen. If you encounter a Bible teacher who claims to be able to identify even a relatively general time in which Jesus will return, They're always around. They're always trying to make a name for themselves by solving some biblical prophecy. And I'm going to put a parameter here because there is one part of the statement that's okay. Right? If someone says to the degree, I would be surprised if Jesus doesn't return in my lifetime. That's okay. 
Every generation of Christians, including the apostles themselves, believed that Jesus would return in their lifetime. So holding that view and seeing it that way is very consistent throughout church history, and it creates the whole purpose of why Jesus is telling these parables, which we'll come back to in a moment. But anything more specific than that, anything more targeted than that, like I figured out when Jesus will be back, it'll be back this year, or this time, or this, anything more than I would be surprised if it's not in my, time, in my lifetime, here's what you do. Don't listen to them. And I don't just mean don't listen to what they say about the end times. I mean don't listen to anything they have to say about Jesus. Because someone who can so clearly not understand what Jesus says directly and repeatedly throughout the gospel is very unlikely to be able to provide any meaningful insights that are accurate to who he actually is. Because doing so demonstrates a truly magnificent degree of ignorance from someone who's calling themselves a Bible teacher. Jesus says, no one will know the day or hour. To which we go, yeah, we're not talking about the day or hour, though. We mean, like, the season. Like, just stop it with that. Like, do you think a, a linguistic loophole is what Jesus was going for? Like, uh, they're never going to solve this puzzle. I'll tell them day or hour so they don't think about it. But really, they could figure out the week if they tried. Like, no. The whole point of what Jesus is saying is put away your holy horoscope, right? Get rid of your end times calendar and do the thing that Jesus says to do clearly every time he addresses the end times. And that is the point of this parable, the point of all the parables that Jesus tells about the end. Be ready. Our job is not to predict Jesus' return. It is to prepare for Jesus' return. Rant over. Verse 6. But at midnight there was a cry. Here is the bridegroom, come out and meet him. Then all the virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. So at this point, it's midnight. Sun goes down in Palestine around 6 p.m., so it's been dark for a while. It's late. The girls fell asleep. And they wake to an announcement. The groom is coming. So they jump to their feet. They rub their eyes. They adjust the wicks on their lamps, and they see that the oil that was in the lamp that they started with is almost gone. Up until this point, there was no practical difference between these two groups of girls. Here's where we see the divide. Five of them brought extra oil. Five did not. So what's the oil represent? There's actually a really beautiful and very simple symbol that's being used by this oil here. In fact, you're going to hear it. I'm going to share it with you. And you're going to be like, wow, that's incredible. I don't know how I never saw that before or thought of it before. It's brilliant. The oil here, it represents oil. I know, like, right? Not Every detail in a parable has allegorical meaning. There are some that will suggest, some brilliant theologians that suggest that the oil represents the Holy Spirit because in other parables, oil does represent the Holy Spirit. However, in this particular context, that seems unlikely due to the solution to the girls not having oil. Right? The, the wise virgins say to the other five, go, 
buy some from the store. Like, I don't know if I just missed this. Like, I go through Walmart. I've never seen it, but maybe it's like in the cosmetic aisle, you know, between like foundation and eyeliner. There's like a Holy Spirit oil section, but that's not something that I know where you go to buy it. So if that's what's intended here, the solution to the problem of not having oil seems really weird, and I don't know how to interpret it. The oil here just means oil. So the foolish five, they turn to the other girls and say, hey, give us some of your oil. Share with us so that our lamps can stay lit too. And the wise five say, no. Now, at first, that seems a little troubling. Because good Christians, we're supposed to share. We're supposed to take care of each other and serve each other, sacrifice for each other. We're supposed to look out for one another, right? So shouldn't the right thing to do here be to share the oil that they have? They brought extra. No. This is not a parable about sharing. It's about preparedness. It's about faithfulness. All ten of these girls received the same calling. But five of them didn't take that calling seriously. And their lack of preparation reveals their lack of love. And the reason the other five say no is not to be vindictive or mean or, ha, you didn't prepare, so tough luck for you. It's because the groom could still be delayed again. It's because they have a job to do. They have something they've been called to. And they are not willing to jeopardize their calling to conform to social pressure. This is a choice that every one of us will face many times in our lives. To do what seems nice, to do what seems loving, to do what makes other people happy. And sometimes that's a good thing. Sometimes we should be doing that. We should be serving and sacrificing for one another. We should be loving one another. But not, listen, not at the expense of your calling. Not at the expense of faithfulness to Jesus. See, the great social pressure that surrounds us is like, oh, just change what you believe about this. Change how you word this. Then you can make it more inclusive. If you let this view change or that thing that Jesus says, if you just change that, if you shift that, more people could come in. More people could be welcomed in and included in the church. All you got to do is change what Jesus said. And the wise say, no. No. Because when given a choice between faithfulness to Jesus and making other people happy, the wise choose faithfulness. So instead they say, go. You've got time. Go. We don't know when the groom's coming back. He's not here yet. Maybe he'll be delayed long enough. Go find some oil, get some more oil, and come back as fast as you can. So the foolish five run off and bring us right into verse 10. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterwards, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. So while the foolish five are off getting more oil, the groom returns. The girls that were ready, who had their lights shining, because they were prepared, they go into the wedding feast with him and the door is shut. When the foolish five return, they knock on the door. They beg, let us in. And the groom says, no. 
I don't even know you. And at first, that seems harsh. Like these poor girls, like they took their lamps, right? They waited for hours. It's not their fault the groom was delayed. It's not their fault it took him so long to arrive. It's not their fault he shows up at a weird hour in the middle of the night. I mean, who shows up for a wedding at midnight? They had this one small window in which they weren't ready because they ran out of oil. Shouldn't the groom be a little bit more gracious? Shouldn't he be a little more understanding here? Here's the terrifying truth. All of these girls expected to go into the wedding feast. All of them expected that they would be invited in and allowed to participate. But five of them remain outside. They stand at the door. They knock. They call him Lord, Lord. And he turns them away. Why? Because they looked right on the surface. They'd even taken some of the right steps. But they were missing the thing that matters most. Because here is the terrifying truth that Jesus is presenting. Professing faith means nothing. Anybody can say I'm a Christian. Anybody can say I love Jesus. Anybody can say all the right words. But Jesus knows our hearts. He knows the reality of who we are. And he's not going to be fooled by somebody who knows all the right things to say. No one's going to talk their way into the kingdom of God. No one's going to manipulate Jesus by saying the right things. Professing faith cannot and will not save you. Only possessing faith can do that. Possessing faith is a real, genuine faith that transforms our lives, our thoughts, our attitudes, our beliefs, and our ideas about life. Real faith produces fruit. And if it doesn't produce fruit, it's not real faith. Real faith is ready. Real faith is eagerly anticipating and waiting for the return of Jesus. And if it's not eager, if it's not ready, it's not real. The foolish, it's not enough. Church, it's not enough to call yourself a Christian. It's not enough to say you believe. If our faith doesn't transform our hearts, if it doesn't transform our lives, if it doesn't transform our view of Jesus and our view of the world around us because of Jesus, it's not real. The foolish five failed to prepare, failed to be ready. And like the wicked, lazy servant from the parable of the talents, they failed to do what they'd been called to do. And then they presumed on the goodness of the groom, thinking it doesn't really matter. It's not a big deal. He's going to let us in anyway. And they're wrong. So this is a warning that we need to take seriously. Because one of the greatest temptations in our culture is to make light of Jesus. 
You don't need to worry about obedience, surrender, transformation. You don't need to worry about service or sacrifice or living for Jesus and focusing all your time and attention. There's just too much work. It's too much effort. Don't worry about that. Just have fun and enjoy your life. You don't need to worry about what Jesus says about gender or marriage or identity. You don't need to worry about what Jesus says about talking to people and how we speak or how we treat other people. You don't need to worry about that. Just, you know, say you love Jesus in your heart, whatever that means. And you'd be fine. It's the idea of Christian inclusivism. Doesn't matter what you do, doesn't matter what you believe, so long as you claim to be a good person and try to be a good person and maybe you say the right words. It has been the ploy of the devil since the beginning to get us to make light of God's instructions. And it is so incredibly easy for us to fall for that same trick because what we're falling for looks like love, sounds nice, sounds gracious, just doesn't agree with Jesus. Jesus calls us to be ready because when he returns, there will not be time to get ready. And when that day comes, when that time comes, there are no second chances. There's no mulligans. There's no do-overs. There's not, hold on a second, let me just go back over here and get some more oil. When Jesus returns, there's not time to get ready. You need to be ready. So I think perhaps the reason that Jesus included this particular detail about the not sharing the oil is to make one point. Faith, genuine faith, is a life-transforming relationship with Jesus where you depend on him, turn to him, trust in him, rely on him, where he becomes your source of truth and your source of life, where he becomes that which you love and treasure above all things. Real faith is a genuine, life-changing relationship with Jesus, and no one can do that for you. So I can teach you about Jesus, Mark, Rick, there are lots of people who can teach you about Jesus. But no one can have a relationship with Jesus for you. So this is why we plead with you. Like, don't let us be your only Bible. Don't let this be your only service, your only worship, the only prayer that you do, the only godly community you engage in. Because we can come alongside you as a church. We can encourage you and support you and stand with you. But we cannot be the oil that you need. We cannot make you ready. Each and every one of us has to do that for ourselves. The only way to be ready for Jesus' return is to live ready every day. So what's that look like? 
living ready for the return of Jesus looks like seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness. It looks like obeying his instructions, desiring him, pursuing in him, seeking him, growing in him, being ready for the return of Jesus looks like focusing your heart and your life and everything in it on Jesus so that all that you do and say and engage in is centered around Jesus. Being ready means that Jesus is your treasure, that you value and prize above all else, that if you had to sacrifice comfort and pleasure and peace, if you had to live in conflict and tension and pain and struggle, but you got Jesus, you would take that over all the treasures and pleasures of this world without him. Being ready means that when Jesus returns... You're there waiting with the light of the gospel that he gave you shining as brightly as you can get it to shine. Because you said no to the pressures of the world. You said no to the pleasures of the world because you had a calling to be ready for Jesus' return. And so you lived seeking him, desiring him, and pursuing him above all else. And it doesn't mean that you're perfect. It doesn't mean that you never make mistakes. It doesn't mean you don't have bad times or bad seasons. It means that at the core of who you are and what you desire is Jesus. What we see here is like being ready doesn't mean that you're constantly staring up at the sky like, oh, is that Jesus coming back? No, that's a bird. Is that Jesus coming back? No, that one's a plane. Is that Jesus? No, that's an international balloon. Like, you live your life. But you live your life with Jesus at the center. Connecting things to Jesus, pursuing Jesus, where he is the first and greatest priority above all things. He's not something that you give lip service to. It's not something you just talk about and say. When it comes to a choice between Jesus and something else, he wins. It's the terrifying truth of the gospel is that there are many people who will knock at the door and say, Lord, Lord, let us in. And Jesus will say, go away. I don't know you. Because we have this life to decide what to do with Jesus. This life to respond to the gospel. This life to live for him, to seek him, to serve him, and to glorify him. We have this life to make ourselves ready. Now let me be clear. Readiness does not earn you salvation. Readiness is the evidence of your salvation. Those who belong to Jesus, those who are his, those who are going to come into his wedding feasts are ready. And those who don't belong to him, those who aren't his, they may stick around for a time. They may look right for a time. They may say all the right words, get baptized, check all the right boxes. But the evidence that they don't actually belong to him is found when he returns and they're not there waiting. Here's the beautiful promise. For those who belong to Jesus, for those who seek and strive to be more like him, to follow him, to serve him, to glorify him, Jesus isn't just coming to rescue us from judgment. He's coming to usher us into a wedding feast. 
to bring us into his joy in a celebration of the wonder that he is, that a joy that will be unlike anything that you can fathom or experience in this life. If you took every great moment you had and you balled them together into one glorious highlight reel of the epic, wonderful moments of your life and you held it up next to the worst moment in heaven, the greatest moments of this world all combined would feel like torture compared to the worst moment that you'll experience in eternity. If you're a parent, right, the first time you hold, held your baby in your hands, and like your heart just felt like it was going to explode because it was so full of love and all these crazy feelings you didn't know you had, it'll seem terrible compared to every moment of eternity with Jesus. I'm not diminishing that moment. I'm glorifying. It's wonderful but it's nothing compared to eternity. The, the joy and the wonder that we will know in this celebration of eternity in the presence and awe of our creator goes beyond anything that we can even fathom or dream of. Your wildest imagination, if you could control everything in life and build a perfection for yourself, is going to be nothing compared to the glory of being in the presence of God. And the beauty of the promise that Jesus makes is if you belong to him, right? It doesn't matter where you've been or what you've done. It doesn't matter the mistakes you've made, the sins you've committed, the failures that you've had. Because there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So your past may be filled with a bunch of stuff that you're ashamed of. But you know what Jesus does is he comes and he takes that shame away. He takes that guilt away. He takes that sin away. And he makes you new. He gives you the newness of life in him. And none of what you were yesterday matters. What matters in this life is what you do with Jesus. So don't wait. Don't wait to build and focus on your relationship with Jesus until you get your job sorted or your family sorted or you get done with these things that you want to do. Don't delay what matters most because the things of this world seem more urgent. Be ready. Grow and pursue Jesus because he will bring you in to a joy that you can't even fathom. This is the promise. Nothing about your performance excludes you from it. Nothing about your ability excludes you from it. It doesn't matter if you're black or white, male or female, old or young, rich or poor. It doesn't matter what you've been through or what you've done. If you have Jesus, you will experience the wondrous joy of him. And in that joy... You will never get no pain. You will never get no tears. If you felt rejection in this life, which most of us have, you'll never be rejected again. For those of us who know loneliness, you'll never feel lonely again. You'll never feel unwanted or unworthy. You'll never feel isolated or disconnected, disappointed or despair. All of that will be gone. It won't even be a memory. It will be so far removed from you in the perfection and the wonder of the glory that Jesus gives We have this life to decide what to do with Jesus. We have this life to be ready. So church, the question that we should ask ourselves, which you should evaluate and take stock of every day. So Jesus came back right now. Am I ready? Because here's the good news. 
For those who belong to Jesus, this will fill your heart with unbelievable joy and excitement. Here's the good news, the beautiful promise. Jesus is coming soon. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for all that you give us and all that you do. For the life that we have in you. And that you would invite us to be a part of your feast. Of the celebration of eternity that we have in you. May we live our lives, God, in readiness for you, in pursuit of you, focused on and striving to be more like you every single day. That when you return, we would be standing with our torches brightly lit, ready to receive you. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for grace. Amen.